If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty. And I'm Adam Wallner. Andrea Drush is in Texas and we'll be back next week. And even with Andrea away, we're still going to do something radically different on this podcast. We're not going to obsess about Donald Trump. That's right. We don't focus on the president in this podcast because we know there's more political news out there in our 30 newsrooms across the country. Today, we're looking at the Senate. Kyle Kondik is the managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball from the University of Virginia Center for Politics. He's going to talk with us about the Democrats' challenge in the Senate, both in November and in the elections to come. It's always been sort of a heavy lift for Democrats to win the Senate back from the Republicans, even though they only need to net two seats. Then Molly Reynolds joins us to discuss the growing disconnect between the Senate and much of the country and what, if anything, can be done about it. If you are in the minority and you think that you could become the majority after the next election, you have very little incentive to do anything constructive with the majority. She's a fellow at the Brookings Institute and will also join us in the studio. All right, you ready? Let's do it. So there really are few people who understand the Senate landscape better than Kyle Kondak. And we wanted to talk to him about the upcoming November elections, of course, which somehow are just three weeks away, and also get his view on the Democrats' even medium-term chances there and why it's so important that they're able to win some of these races in red states this year. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me again. I should say, yeah, welcome back to, thank you. to the show. A, retur- a rare return guest uh, on Beyond the Bubble, actually, from, from outside the McClatchy family. I am honored. appreciate it. How, how nervous should you be or how optimistic should you be if you're a Democrat uh, eyeing some of these Senate races? They're defending 26 of the 35 seats being contested, which is a it's not the worst position a party's ever been in a Senate popular election year, but it's it's near the top in terms of being sort of overexposed and defending a lot of territory. And as you mentioned, a lot of these seats are in, in, in difficult states for Democrats. You could basically argue that Democrats are facing this historically bad map. And in order to win the majority, they have to do something historic in and of itself, which would be to win 80 percent of the total seats being contested, which is why they're underdogs. And, and it does seem like the general consensus has been that the Senate has maybe moved away from them over the past few weeks or so remains to be seen. But certainly you would not say the Democrats are, are 50-50 to win the Senate. They're considerably worse than that. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a point we've been hearing a lot from Republicans the past few weeks after the, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit. Uh, the Brett bump, as, as they like to call it. I think that this is something that's going to help them. What do you make of that? Do you think that's going to have any short or long-term impact on, on the 2018 elections? I hesitate on the Kavanaugh factor because it, it does seem like there's some limited evidence that in some of the red states, the Republican prospects have gotten maybe a little bit better. But I also know that in these midterm years, sometimes things break at the end toward the opposition party. And I'd be cautious in totally changing one's priors about an election like this, because it may be that we're on the Saturday or Sunday before the election and things start to solidify maybe more in a little bit of a Democratic direction. But the problem for Democrats is that the Senate battlefields are not really battleground states in the presidential election. It's, you know, Florida is. Florida's one of the, the key contested states. But states like Montana, Indiana, Missouri, North Dakota, West Virginia, those are all sort of landslide Trump states. Now, the one where Republicans argue that they've been consistently leading is North Dakota. Um, In our crystal ball ratings, we just moved that to leans Republican. And that, to me, sort of solidified the Republican edge in the Senate because 
There are all sorts of different ways to slice and dice the Senate map, but effectively, Democrats can't win the majority if they don't win one of three states, North Dakota, Tennessee, and Texas. The quote-unquote Brett bump has really been itself a subject of pretty heated debate between Republicans and Democrats, whether or not it's real. I, I think it's fair to say you do see some critical mass of evidence, whether it was Trump ticking up in Gallup. Uh, their weekly tracking poll was at 44% approved, 51% disapproved, was about as good as he's been yeah. almost at any point in his presidency, uh, frankly. And, and you hear about it a lot from Republicans. What I hear from Democrats back is maybe they've seen movement. And I have talked to plenty mm-hmm. of Democrats who say they've seen the movement. There is a question in their mind about whether or not this movement, though, whether it's connected to the Kavanaugh fight, whether or not these are just Republican voters who were always going to vote Republican, even if they were maybe toying with the idea to pollsters that they were going to vote Democrat, or Republican voters who were always going to become engaged and energized with the election. This is hard stuff, Kyle, to figure out. It does seem like it hasn't been a great couple of weeks for Senate Democrats, to your point, who just have basically no margin of error for this thing. Yeah, and, and again, I think that, that, that Heidkamp was always losing, and now there's some question as to whether Claire McCaskill in Missouri is behind, although I always thought she was pretty vulnerable anyway, so it may just be these these folks coming home. And also, the president seems to do better in the polls when he's not dominating the action, and I wonder if the president will be able to keep his head down over the last three weeks here. Um, Today was not a great moment for that. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you. The president is trying to distance himself from Saudi Arabia and any perceived conflicts of interest after he said he initially believes King Salman's denial that the kingdom had Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi killed. You know, I think that he is going to be, you know, move back to front and center. And I think usually when he moves front and center, his numbers maybe dip a little bit. And we even saw that in the 2016 campaign. We did a piece back then and, and we, we noticed that in, in Google, Google trends, you know, when Hillary Clinton was doing a little, was getting searched more, she was generally doing more poorly in the campaign. And the same thing was true for, for Trump. And Trump was generally leading in those metrics. But near the end of the campaign, of course, with the Comey letter and everything, Clinton sort of tended to lead. I don't want to relitigate all that. I just mean to say that the Kavanaugh fight might have been useful to the Republicans in that it took the president out of the news a little bit. And I think usually when he's not in the news, it's maybe a little bit better for Republicans. And looking at the Senate map as well, you know, you mentioned, of course, Democrats have to play defense in a number of states, but they also haven't really been able to establish an advantage in their best offensive opportunities right. either. You look at Nevada, Arizona, you know, polling averages show that those are basically tied. I believe you guys have those races rated as toss-ups That's right, right now. Yeah. And, and uh, Dean Heller has sort of hung around as, I guess it's not that surprising though, because, you know, Nevada is a super duper competitive state. It's sort of like the uh, western part of the country's Florida in that both Florida and Nevada, there's been this expectation that, oh, well, they're going to trend Democratic. And, you know, they, they both have demographic growth that is in some ways positive for Democrats, but in some ways positive for Republicans, too. And, you know, Florida, the great, the, you know, the great equalizer for Republicans is that you have this continuous stream of older retirees from the Northeast and the Midwest who may be generally a little bit more conservative, um, sort of making up for positive Democratic demographic growth elsewhere. And and so I would expect that Nevada is going to be one that, that comes down to the wire. It's interesting you make a comparison between Nevada and Florida. Nevada man actually makes some sense to me. If we're going to talk about Florida man right, as, right, right. As, as an internet meme, Nevada man, that actually, that, that seems to roll off the tongue. So we'll see if, see if that goes anywhere. You know, Kyle, it just seems like in and those races you just talked about, and this is true of the House map too, so much of this is depending on where a lot of these late undecided voters go. 
Right. You have said, I mean, traditionally, they usually swing against the party in power, which clearly would right. be Republicans. Is there any question whether or not it could be different this time around? Well, Nate Cohen of the New York Times had this interesting piece recently because, you know, the New York Times is doing this huge house poll, generally house polling project. They'll be doing some Senate races, too. And for people like me who starve for data, particularly for house races, I found it to be a very interesting and illuminating project. But he looked at the undecideds in, in the New York Times Siena College polling and suggested that it may be in the South and the West, the undecideds might break toward the Democrats because it's sort of a more d- diverse, particularly Hispanic group of undecideds, but that in the in the Northeast and the, in the Midwest, that those voters might break Republican because they're predominantly this white working class group. However, in a midterm environment where I think turnout's going to be better in this midterm than we're used to, I think it's probably going to be north of 40 percent. However, in a midterm environment, those undecideds may just decide not to vote. <laughs> and so they may break differently depending on the state, or they may just not show up at all. Just underscores the kind of fog of war, I yes. think, whereas one Republican operative put it to me. I was texting them last night. Like, we just, there's just a lot about this election we don't know, maybe even more than is typical. Um, right. You know, a, and, a less than a month out before a midterm. And, and also in a midterm year, if it's a wave year, you do expect the wave to kind of move in a similar way. Like if you consider the last three big wave elections to be 94, 2006, and 2010, the Republicans might actually net a Senate seat or two, or at the very best, the Democrats are picking up one Senate seat or, or, or two Senate seats. And that, to me, would be the absolute best possible for Democrats. So because of the Senate map, it's if, if, if it's a wave year, it's not going to look the same as a 94, an 06, or a 2010. And well, Kyle, I also wanted to ask you about a potentially late-breaking problem for Democrats in the, the race for the Senate here, and that's in New Jersey, a very blue state. But um, you know, some some polls have suggested that uh, Senator Bob Menendez uh, maybe is in for a tighter race than expected. Uh, we've seen the DSCC spend some money there. And then uh, just today, Senate Majority PAC, which is the main super PAC uh, spending on Senate Democrats, announced a $3 million oh, ad buy mm-hmm. just uh, three weeks out from the election. How worried should Democrats be about this seat. You know, Menendez had these legal problems. He he ended up getting through that last year. New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez just a couple of hours ago tonight insisting that he is innocent after the Justice Department dropped a 14-count felony corruption indictment on his head earlier today. And New Jersey is kind of a machine state in that there are real advantages to being kind of the party-backed candidate. And sometimes machine states don't realize when a candidate should be phased out. (laughs) And the whole Democratic Party in New Jersey rallied around Bob Menendez. He actually didn't even do that well in the primary. I think he only got, I don't know, high 50s or about 60 percent or something against a total no-name candidate. And, you know, if this was a fresh face, you know, one of the Democratic House members in New Jersey, for instance, or some, some other new Democrat, I doubt that Democratic Senate campaigns would have to put in millions of dollars into this race. Uh, so it's, you know, it, I, I do think it's a, it, you know, if you're looking for an upset potential, it might be New Jersey, although I, I would still rather be Menendez just despite all of his problems. Kyle, let's, let's turn our focus, shift our focus to the long term here, or even the medium term for, for Democrats in the Senate. This is an important cycle for, for Democrats if you look through the, the, not just 2020, but even 2022, to preserve their chance at, at any point winning a majority, even if they are not able to do it this cycle. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So the problem for Democrats in the Senate is that the, the Senate map, just like the House map, has this kind of like inherent Republican lean. So if you were to 
take the median Senate seat by presidential performance, I believe that if, if you were to create that seat, it would be between Arizona and North Carolina, which are states that the president won by about three and a half points in the, in the presidential race. So their Senate seats, the median Senate seat is roughly five and a half points to the right of the nation, given that Hillary Clinton won the national popular vote by two points. This Senate map sets up the next one in that if the Republicans are able to make a two or three seat net gain this year, which seems possible, they could effectively shut out the Democrats in in 2020, even if the environment is bad for Republicans and who knows whether it will be or not. So, so, so that really ups the pressure, it seems, for, for Democrats to win seats like Nevada and Arizona right. in, in 2018. Because it, it might not give them majority this time, but it might give them the ability to win the majority in 2020. Whereas, again, if Republicans get to, instead of 51 seats, they're at 53 or 54, you know, you could find some offensive chances for Democrats on the next map, but it's not like an overwhelming one. And then 2022... Uh, it was actually the first time in, in the history of Senate popular elections that every state that had a Senate race voted the same way for president and for Senate. And so, yes, the Democrats do have some offensive targets that year, like in a, you know, in a Pennsylvania, for instance, or Wisconsin. But it's not like there's an overwhelming amount of targets, whereas, you know, the Republicans did have a ton of targets on this map. And they're they're struggling to capitalize. But but at the end here, they might be able to pick up one, two, three seats, which, again, would insulate them in the future. I mean, it's just. Democrats just have a long-term problem in the Senate if their coalition, as it has increasingly become, is made up of voters of color and younger white millennials, and they do worse and worse with the white working class. Right. Because the white working class makes up the bulk of the voters in so many states. I mean, it's just not, just in the same way that they struggle with the Electoral College with their coalition, it's not efficient for Electoral College. So it will even be worse in in the Senate. I mean, you know, look, coalitions change all the time, Kyle. You know, certainly in the short and medium term, it, it doesn't look like this problem is going to get any easier for Democrats. And, you know, the Democrats have often been the Senate majority in part because they were winning, you know, at the same time, like both Senate seats in Montana, both Senate seats in West Virginia, both Senate seats in North Dakota. As of, I think, prior to 2010, they held they held both of them in North Dakota. You know, they had a Senate seat in South Dakota. You know, Tom Daschle held that seat. This was going back to 2004. The Democrats probably don't need as many of them as they did in the past because they're making up so much ground, it seems, in this election and maybe in the future in historically Republican affluent suburbs. But so, you know, maybe the Democrats can win House majorities and keep them, but winning Senate majorities may be a little bit more challenging than it has been in the past for the Democrats. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. That's a fascinating discussion. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks, man. Awesome. Great. Good. Yeah, that was great. Good. You know, Wanner, we only touched on it briefly there, but I can't believe that we're talking seriously about the New Jersey Senate race right now and and what a, a seemingly a screw up this is for Democrats that they even have to spend any money at all on this race when it could be going to a place like Montana or North Dakota or take your red state pick. Right. I think, yeah, if you'd put any, you know, Democrat or Republican on truth serum, I think they'd still predict that. Uh, Menendez is going to win this race in November. But I mean, three million dollars, you know, that's that's some serious money that, you know, could be going to some of these other battlegrounds. And there's still a lot of really tight Senate races. So if you're putting in three million dollars into New Jersey this late on not a great sign for Democrats. You know, it could have been another three million for Beto in Texas. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think he needs it. I don't think he needs it. Before we get to our next segment, we wanted to tell you about Sports Beat KC. 
Sportsbeat KC is the Kansas City Star's five-day-a-week sports podcast, bringing you episodes on the Chiefs, Royals, Sporting KC, and college football and basketball every afternoon, Monday through Friday, right in time for your commute. Search for Sportsbeat KC on SoundCloud to listen or subscribe through your favorite podcasting app. Now back to the show. So for our next segment, uh, we're going to take a longer and maybe even a historical look at the Senate. You know, in the wake of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, of course, there was an incredible amount of anger on the left. A lot of that spilled out to the institution of the Senate itself, the fact that it exists at all. Liberals angry that Kavanaugh was able to be confirmed, despite the fact that the majority of the country doesn't elect the Senate, of course. You don't need a remedial civics class to know that states, regardless of population, receive two senators each. And this became, believe it or not, a real discussion point this week in Washington, discussion about whether the Senate should exist, whether it's democratic, why it was founded. And we thought that was a good opportunity to, to take a look at that with Molly Reynolds, who is a fellow at the Brookings Institute who can provide some historical context of the Senate. Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's get the, the, the most pressing question, if you will, right off the bat. You know, Molly, there's been a lot of debate about from angry Democrats about, hey, let's get rid of the Senate. Now, I'm no constitutional law expert. That seems like an unreasonable position. But you tell us, is that something that, that could actually happen? Is this a reasonable discussion to have? Yeah, we're not getting rid of the Senate anytime soon. Um, I think that when people say abolish the Senate, when they express this frustration with the chamber, um, it comes from a, a real place of frustration with how the system works and how that chamber specifically works. But it's not going anywhere anytime soon. So we're stuck with it. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're not going to get rid of it anytime soon. But what about sort of altering the way that it looks? You know, this is another argument we've been hearing f from the left in the wake of, of the Kavanaugh hearing that, you know, just the way that the representation works in the Senate. Right. You know, you have these very small states that get as many senators a as the big states. So why not, you know, allow D.C. or Puerto Rico, you know, allow them to become states so that they can have two senators as well and sort of balance things out a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a more realistic possibility than abolishing the chamber entirely. I don't necessarily think we're getting two new states in the union terribly soon, in part because of political valence of bringing those two particular areas into the union. I we're, think, we're talking about the District of Columbia yeah, and Puerto yeah. Rico. As much as, which, as someone who lives in the District of Columbia, as much as I would like to have voting representation in the U.S. Congress. Taxation uh, without <laughs> representation. <laughs> uh, and we saw this a little bit in kind of the mid-2000s when there was some discussion about trying to give D.C. voting representation in the House, that a lot of that discussion just got immediately cast as, you know, this would be more reliably Democratic votes. It's worth noting that, at least in Puerto Rico, um, you know, Puerto Rico's current resident commissioner is a Republican. There's more, a little bit more heterogeneity in that territory than I think sometimes we give it credit for. But the point being that I think once we start talking about bringing D.C. and Puerto Rico into the uh, into the Union of States, it just immediately becomes, oh, those are more Democratic votes, and that's why people want to do this. I mean, that's the, the, the threshold for adding a state. It's not like 
like something you just take a right. vote in the house and everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, you're a state now. Congratulations. Right. So, and I, and I think how so much of what we talk about in politics today is just seen as, well, what, what's the end here? And it's, it's all about the ends and not necessarily the means. That's immediately where a discussion about statehood would go. So Molly, let's, let's take a step back because I assume that this is not the first time we've had this kind of uh, discomfort, if you will, in our democracy where people are complaining about the disconnect between the Senate and the majority rule in this country. I mean, are there any other periods in our history where we've seen this kind of tension bubble up before? Or is this time genuinely different? Going back to the founding, part of the reason why we have the Senate and equal representation for states was the result of demands by the small states at the founding of the Constitution for a voice in the national government and the threat that they wouldn't join the union under a constitution that did not give them equal voting power. So obviously this has been a a tension for a long time. That part is not new. And obviously we've seen other periods of very high partisan conflict in the U.S. Congress. Um, That that's also not not new. But what we have right now is a combination of very polarized political parties in the House and the Senate and the country as a whole, and an overall pretty electorally competitive environment. So both parties often are able to look at Congress and say, oh, after the next election, my party might be in the majority instead of the minority. And that really affects people's incentives about how to cooperate and work across the aisle. Right. And as you mentioned, this is, this is of course, been a central tension since the founding. Can you remember, you know, any other times in more contemporary history where, you know, this really became sort of a, a political issue that, that bubbled up to the surface? So just in terms of thinking about, like, abolishing the Senate entirely, um, I do think that just sometimes that frustration comes out of broader frustrations with people feeling like they're not represented in the system as a whole Mm -hmm. and not necessarily some sort of specific, as much as I like to think about the Senate as a really interesting institution, I understand that most voters don't spend their time thinking (laughs) about it that way. And so this is really, I think that what we're hearing right now is really just a a call that comes out of frustration with the, with the broader environment um, and not necessarily the Senate specifically. You know, Molly, we just had a discussion about how you know Democrats are facing, obviously, a difficult Senate election in November. Yeah. Look, again, we've established like the, the Senate's not going anywhere, and even adding states, which might relieve some pressure from a, a liberal perspective, is probably unlikely. So what happens? I mean, and is there any kind of comparable situation in history where you know, they figured something out or there's been any kind of solution or again, are we just in more uncharted territory right now? Right. I mean, for me, that question always comes back to what do we expect about demographic change in the country as a whole? Because it's certainly true that if we think about, say, states that currently have a Democratic senator like North Dakota or Montana or West Virginia that have been trending red, we might think that in the medium to long term, those places aren't still going to be electing Democratic senators. But at the same time, we see places like Texas, where Beto O'Rourke, even if he does not win in a couple of weeks, is making a credible campaign at uh, winning Texas. Places like Georgia and Arizona that have traditionally been more red statewide, but may in fact be trending blue. So I think it's easy to look at the current map and say, oh, there are these states that are have voted for Republicans in the presidential election that are where we have Democrats 
Democratic senators who are still hanging on. But as that changes, we're going to see it become more difficult for Democrats in the Senate. But that ignores kind of the other half of the ledger, which is to say there's other demographic change happening in other states that's going to, even if it's not equal, it's going to counterbalance that in some ways. Right. So over time, this could just all sort of balance out itself on its own. Right. And we've seen other periods of regional realignment in the United States with the parties. I mean, the movement by and large of the South out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party since the mid 20th century is um, the most recent example of this. And so in some ways, you know, we see some of these sort of sunbelt states becoming more more purple now. And so this is a story of American history that the, the parties aren't fixed even that we have, you know, and have had for a long time, two parties that we call the Democrats and the Republicans, they don't look the same as they have throughout history. You know, Molly, it seems like at the heart of this for a lot of Democrats and liberals, this question of whether the country is a republic or a democracy. Yeah. I mean, I think when the average voter looks at the political system and says, you know, this not only is the system maybe not producing the results that I personally want, it doesn't seem to be producing any kind of results whatsoever. That frustration is real. People think that Washington isn't you know, making policy isn't producing outcomes. And at this very moment, one way that that frustration is realizing itself is in this particular criticism of the Senate and the idea that, you know, the coalition that voted for Brett Kavanaugh to be the next Supreme Court justice, for example, only represents, you know, some portion of Americans and people don't feel like their voice is being heard. I think that frustration is genuine. For me, it's as much about the sense that Washington isn't working as it is about the sense that it's specifically, oh, the U.S. Congress should always be enacting what the majority of Americans want. So, you know, so right now, this is certainly a complaint from the left side of the aisle right now. But, but is this something that we've heard from Republicans or conservatives in the past that they don't feel like they are being properly represented by the Senate or just Washington as a whole? And we're calling for, for similar sort of reforms or changes? So I definitely think we've seen times when Republican voters feel like the Republican Party in Washington hasn't been doing what mm-hmm. they would like to see. I mean, I think in many ways the rise of the Freedom Caucus and sort of that wing of the House Republican Conference is rooted in some of that is that, oh, I mean, there's some pretty good political science work that suggests that Republicans as a party are are a party that has traditionally valued ideological sort of purity and commitment to a shared set of ideological principles. And I think there have definitely been times when Republican voters have felt like those members of Congress aren't advocating um, and aren't pushing hard enough for kind of the ideological things that they want to see. I think at this moment, obviously, we're seeing the frustration rise from folks on the left, particularly inspired by the Kavanaugh episode. But I, it's, I don't think it's unique to, to them at all. Molly, you've also looked into this question that because there are so many competitive election cycles on one on top of another, it feels like that that kind of environment isn't necessarily conducive to satisfying government for anyone. Right. And there's a there's a really great book by a political scientist named Francis Lee who um sort of documents this and the effects of this. But the argument is basically, again, that you have a lot of incentive to just engage in messaging behavior, you know, offering amendments to bills that are just going to try to embarrass your partisan opponents. And that dynamic just really reduces the incentive to work across the aisle. And that, I think, feeds back into the frustration that people feel with Washington as a place that doesn't work particularly well, because this is what they see happening to the extent that they're following anything that's happening. 
happening in Washington. Hey, Molly, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was great. Cool, yeah. Thank you. That was exactly... um... So, Adam, Democrats aren't going to get rid of the Senate. Probably not adding D.C. or Puerto Rico as states anytime soon either. Sounds like they need to start winning Senate races in once red-leaning areas, like Molly suggested, if they want to try to correct this imbalance. That's right. And I think, you know, it'd be instructive for, you know, people who are frustrated with maybe the way the Senate is operating right now to, to take the long view, right? You know, the, the way the Senate is today, it's not the way it's necessarily going to be in five or 10 years. And I thought the point that she was making about the demographic changes, especially, you know, that that's going to be the, the key to watch here as Democrats try to take back the Senate, you know, whether that's in 2018 or 2020 or beyond is if they are losing some of those states that are starting to turn more red, can they start bringing those states that are starting to become more demographically diverse into their column over time. Which is another way of saying you need to watch the Arizona and Nevada Senate races very closely in November. That's right. If you hear that sound, that means it's a lightning round. Adam, I've got the timer for 30 seconds. Ready, set, go. So I want to focus in on Florida's 27th congressional district in the Miami area. It's a seat uh, where Ileana ross Leighton is retiring. Hillary Clinton won it by 20 points in 2016. So a lot of Democrats were feeling pretty good about their chances to bring that one into their column in November. But it's been a much tougher race than expected. The latest sign of that, a Republican super PAC, Congressional Leadership Fund, is starting to spend on ads there. Uh, We'll see what, if anything, Democrats do to respond to that. Adam, you got that in under 30 seconds, I have to say. All right. It's a very good point. This is the kind of race where if you're looking for optimism for Republicans in the House front, uh, look nowhere else other than Florida 27. This is a race that's supposed to be in the bag basically since the moment the incumbent retired. That's right. And instead we're talking about it, you know, CLF is spending there. So not a great sign for Democrats. Been an environment that maybe isn't quite as hospitable to them as they would have hoped at this point in the election cycle. Okay. Uh, Warner, you're going to time me now? Yep. You ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. So I want to give a shout out to Katie Glick, a frequent contributor to this show. She has an excellent story out today for McClatchy, writing about this network of veteran Democratic candidates running across the country who have really formed their own network to stay in touch and help each other out. What's also really notable about this, who sits at the top of this group, it's a congressman named Seth Moulton. You might have heard of him on this show. He is a real uh, rising star in the party and maybe a potential future presidential candidate who's collecting a lot of chits from these candidates, who many of whom are likely to be congressmen and women in the future. Oh, just a second over. I mean, so I, close. I, I think Katie's story was so good, it merited the extra second it and does. a half. It merits much more than 30 seconds. It merits which, much Which is more. why you should go read it on Flatchy's website. Yes, yeah, spend a whole five or ten minutes even reading the story. It's an excellent read. Walner, this has been fun. I won't see you next week. Yeah, uh, f- fear not. Beyond the Bumble listeners, Andrea Drush will be back in the co-host chair. Next Andrea week. is going to come back with fresh on-the-ground reporting from Texas. She's been all over the state writing about its very interesting politics in 2018. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And make sure to check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or rating. Talk to you next week.